Hi everyone, Dan here. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd just like to make you aware that there were a couple of sound issues when recording the interviews with the guys. It's obviously needs must at the moment, uh, recording a lot of the stuff over Google Hangouts. So I'd just like to apologise in advance for that. But I'd like you to uh, encourage you to to stick with the guests and stick with their stories and, and stick with the really important message. All three of them were fantastic and so generous with their time and they've all got amazing insights. So... Yeah, it's a really important message, really important episode, so I'd like you to stick with it if possible. I'd also like to make a little clarification before we start. Justin, I said, was a Premier League footballer, which he obviously wasn't, so that's earlier on the episode, so do disregard that when you hear it. And yeah, please enjoy the episode. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent of my family suffering. Regret that? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. <laughs> Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too perhaps may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Yes, cheated. Welcome to another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, a Man Marking production. You're joined by me, Dan Reed, as I take a look back at the first and to date only out gay Premier League footballer, Justin Fashioning. He was honestly, honestly uh, you know, a genuine guy. Um, I think, um, you know, Lately, he's been recognised as a pioneer 
um, and you know a significant figure in football um, and also in in gay history and uh, as a, a spokesperson for black people I think I think you know you put it in context of society and obviously this was around the time of section 28 the, the kind of well-known law which forbid any references to homosexuality in schools or in local government institutions and you know this created this culture of fear and aligned with that was the AIDS crisis and all the suspicions that people had around um, you know the potential risks that they saw it um, which was enabled by the government to a large degree in terms of their messaging around the potential risk that gay men might cause other people in society. Oh my god you just feel um you feel there's something wrong with you. You feel like everybody else is talking about girls and girlfriends and things like that. And um, there's me, my, my feelings was the boys. And I'm just thinking, it, it was very lonely, a very lonely feeling. Um, very isolated. You feel as though you're the only one that feels like this because no one talks about it and you don't really understand. You don't really know what being gay means. We never called it gay back then. It was about cook being a fairy. <laughs>
Oh my God, you just feel, um, you feel there's something wrong with you. You feel like everybody else is talking about girls and girlfriends and things like that. And um, there's me, my, my feelings was for boys. And I'm just thinking it, it was very lonely, a very lonely feeling. Um, very isolated. You feel as though you're the only one that feels like this because no one talks about it and you don't really understand. You don't really know what being gay means. We never called it gay back then. It was about being a fairy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, I, I felt looking back on it, it was a very, very lonely experience, something that you couldn't actually talk to anybody about. And did you, did you, did you come out to your parents and your friends and stuff at that time, or did you? Was it kind oh, of no. to yourself? No, no, just kept that to myself. Um, you know, obviously thinking there's something wrong, and I don't want people to think I'm ill, and stuff, but I thought I was. Uh, so I, I kept that all quiet until um, I got to secondary school. And, you know, secondary school boys are really quite cruel. They'll call you gay or queer, even if you're not, just to start a fight. And I remember, because I'm a little guy, I'm not really a fighter. I got called queer. And, you know, I like looking at men's bums and dicks. And I just didn't deny it. I just said, so what? So that was my response to it. And in a way, that was, that was my defence because... What you, you the fight wouldn't start because you're saying no, it's not, and they're going yes, it is, and then it becomes fisticuffs. When I said so, what it took a bit of armory away from them, they couldn't actually respond. You know, they, they've done the worst they can do by calling me, calling me a queer. And I presume then, as you got older, it almost became you became more comfortable with, with who you are and that sort of thing. Do you ever remember like a a time when you started to understand more about your sexuality and that sort of thing? Um, not right away. It was this, yeah, although people knew at school, uh, none of my, my friends outside of school knew. So it was still this little secret I was carrying around with me. Um, that didn't actually change until I started going to um, a, a, a theatre school in... Um, in Marylebone. Astley was one of the founding members of Stonewall FC. For those of you who don't know what Stonewall FC is or who Stonewall FC are, I asked Astley to explain where the team came from, how we started getting involved, and some of the stories from when they used to play. Uh, Stonewall FC is a, uh, a football club that has, was made up of predominantly gay men. And uh, the reasons why we got together is because we didn't feel comfortable playing in clubs or at schools that we used to play in. We just didn't fit in, couldn't be ourselves. Um, I, I played at school. I played at college. I played for amateur teams local teams around here but then it was like having to keep your sexuality quiet but then it was becoming increasingly more difficult to do that because if they have an end of season do and people took their girlfriends and their wives along you ended up going by yourself and already the rumors were start you know we've never seen him with a girl but with stonewall fc you could be yourself we could go for a drink in a gay pub after and we can talk about fancying this guy or fancying that guy. And 
again, that was very liberating. You know, the, the, the shackles were off, basically. You can just be yourself. And how did, I, I believe you were one of the founder members as well. How did that all come about? Uh, well, I was playing for uh, uh, an amateur side, local side around here, and then I saw an ad in one of the gay papers saying they're looking for gay players to possibly form a team. And I was quite taken back by it because I thought there can't be people like me out there that like football. I can't imagine any gay person liking football apart from me because the only image you see of gay people on television are the very limp-wristed, non-sporty types. And I thought, I'll go along and meet these guys, not with the intention of staying, but I'll just go along and have a look. I went along and was really surprised by the the ordinariness of the people that were there. There were teachers, uh, there was a doctor, there were landscape gardeners, there were shop assistants. They're just ordinary people who like football. And you wouldn't know that they were gay until they actually mentioned it. So um, it was about getting together and feeling comfortable, you know, with each other. And then what happened, we had so many people join that we had enough for two squads and we thought we'd have to join a league. And there are no other gay teams about that we knew of. So we had to join a straight league on Sunday, Sunday mornings. And um, we thought we were going to be anonymous. But um, no, that, that, that went right out the window when we tried to join the league because you have to do your pitch to the league to say why you want to join and maybe play a, um, a grading game. But somehow the press got hold of, I don't know how, but the press got hold of um, uh, a gay football team. They're gay people that play football. And it made the papers, uh, the Daily Daily Mail, I think it was, or, and the Sun. And they basically outed us at this, um, this grading meeting. So a couple of our representatives went to the meeting to sort of like say why we want to join the league. But they walked in and found there was the newspaper in front of every one of the club representatives. So there was no hiding, you know, they knew right away, oh, this is a bunch of gay guys who want to join this league. <laughs> Frightening. <laughs> that must have been, I suppose in, 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 in 1991, I mean, even today, it's, it's, I'd imagine that, that image you know, of uh, a gay football club is probably something that, that probably skews in a lot of people's minds. I, I suspect in 1991, it was, kind of even more pronounced yeah yeah i mean if you think about it we had um everything was anti-gay we had a piece of legislation by the conservative party section 28 i don't know if you're familiar with section 28 for those who don't know section 28 was a piece of legislation which um forbid local authorities to promote homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle um so if i like what I do now, I go into schools and colleges and talk about discrimination and all its forms. If I mention homosexuality, that teacher or whoever brought me to that university or college could actually get sacked for doing it. So we had that going on. We had the AIDS epidemic going on still. People were dying left, right and centre uh, from it and gay people to blame. Um, it was a very, very tough time in early, early 90s. Well, everything up to, probably up to the, the Soho bombings when things changed, I think, in people's minds. 
So um, I presume then that when you you joined this league, that you were probably were you subject to quite a lot of abuse in the the matches and that sort of thing. Oh God, yeah. I mean, subtle, subtle abuse to start with because people knew there was a gay team and they were going to play against this particular team. The opposition would bring their wives and their girlfriends to see this freak show because they, they, you know, in their words, one guy said, "We've well, come to see a bunch of women play, and we're going to, we're going to beat them." And that was the attitude. They thought gay men would run at the first sign of being kicked. So we just got, we got hefty challenges. We got spat at. We got wolf whistled. And um, the good thing about it is that the good thing, if there's anything that comes out of it, is that when we got kicked, really badly fouled, we just did it back to the opposition. So if they did a two-footed challenge on us, one of our guys would do a two-footed challenge on them. So it, it was, you know, making a statement that, yeah, you kick me, I'm going to kick you back. And if you won a game, you got some respect. Um, we've got to a point where if opposition thought they were losing the game, they would then start a fight, so the game would become void. They'd rather they'd rather have the game called off rather than actually lose the game to, in their words, a bunch of women. So yeah, it was, it was quite difficult. Um, I think the worst experience of uh, homophobia I got on the pitch was uh, a team. I'm afraid it's from my own community, uh, the black community. Um, I just remember. Uh, there's a particular song that was out at the time, which is popular with some people, by Buju Banton. And the song was basically uh, inciting people to go around and murder homosexuals. So this, this opposition team was singing this song in their dressing room just down the hall. And six of them decided, you know what, they'd come into our dressing room. So they came and kicked the door open and started shouting this homophobic abuse, really vile, nasty stuff. And they only left the dressing room because one of our players, a goalkeeper, he was a little public fireman and he was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he just charged them and says, right, and which one of you wants to get, and he used the F word, first. <laughs> and these guys just legged it on the pitch. We just got um, punched, kicked, bat at, and we had no protection from the referee because the referee's didn't know how to deal with homophobia the way we're dealing with it nowadays. Um, the only thing they could actually deal with was maybe the racism. So if I got called, whatever, then the referee can step in. But the remit was to only deal with racism. But the homophobic stuff we were getting on the pitch, we just sort of like had to suck it up and just get on with the game. Was football a particularly difficult environment then? Or was it, like, often it's described as not like a reflection of society? Was it was that kind of par for the course, that type of attitude towards gay men at that time? Or was it football a particularly sort of bad place for it? Because it's, you know, classically is a, you know, for, for you get lots of straight men in one place. Mm. I, th I think it's a reflection of society. But then um, with football, uh, football fans, so-called fans, were allowed to get away with so much. Because, you know, still at that time we were coming, it was playing on the pitch. There was still, was still the height of racism and the respect thing. That was like the early days of that. So there was a lot of um, racism going on in the game. And then we, as gay men, started playing football at that time. So 
I was thinking if they, they haven't dealt with the racism yet, how on earth are they going to deal with homophobia? <laughs> yeah. And I thought they were never going to deal with homophobia because we still had the racism thing. You've got it in two ways, really, as a, as a black gay man at, at that time. Mm. Was, was, do you feel as though you got treated differently because you were black and gay as opposed to the, the guys in the team that were white and gay? Um, that, that is, it's a, it's supposed to be, that might be a difficult question to answer, but I mean, the only, the only way I get treated differently maybe is sometimes going out on the gay scene, like going to bars in Soho and like, um, you'd be standing there waiting to buy a drink and you'd be next and the barman would totally overlook you because he didn't fancy you. He'd be looking to serve the guy, the pretty guy who's standing behind me. So I found within the gay scene, I was getting a lot of, um, prejudice in that respect that oh I'm not good looking enough or they don't fancy me so they'd rather overlook me serve the guy behind who they might be able to play up um, I think that that bothered me more I think that that bothered me yeah that bothered me more it just made it clear to me that the, the gay community is just as, can be just as racist and adding to that I mean we used to train in um, Islington and we go to the nearest gay pub and we'd walk in there with our football kit and uh, track suits and our bags and then the, the people in the pub would then look at us and say who are you we go so we, we play football and we just got them looking down their nose at us saying oh you guys want to be straight you're just trying to be straight that's why you're playing football they couldn't get into their heads that gay men actually like football you're trying to be a straight man, and that's why you're playing it. So we, even from our own community, we had we had um, we had to deal with that as well. That's, um, I suppose, that must have been really, really difficult to kind of reconcile with. That, as as you say, even people who who were from the gay community who presumably would have experienced prejudice in their life, you would think that that would make people less likely to hold other prejudices, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, you know, in a funny sort of way, very naive, I think, because, yeah, I mean, you would think, yes, uh, black, some black people will say we're oppressed and yeah, we are in certain, certain areas. And then you'd think you'd be a bit more understanding of other groups. But I found that, no, that's not the case. You know, um, you might be talking about, oh, I'm being treated differently because I'm black, but then I will then um, discriminate against someone else because they're, they're gay. Or because they're 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 Muslim, um, so I mean, what I've learned over the years is that so-called minority groups can also be homophobic and racist and sexist. Had the abuse, or has the abuse, or or the difficulties that you've you kind of experienced? Did they ever get so bad that you kind of wanted to stop playing for the team, or oh god, that, yeah, that sort of thing? Oh god, yeah, I mean. I was, I was straddling both teams. I was playing for Stonewall and playing for um, my local club. And it's not the first time, but um, on this occasion, they knew nothing about my sexuality. And the, my captain, who was a great, big, aggressive, loud bloke, and every second word out of his mouth was a C word. And he was constantly calling the opposition captain a, you know, P... Faggot, I, I'm using the word, but I won't use the other word. 
calling him a oh. faggot all the oh. way through the game. So at half time, he was doing his talk and he goes, anybody got anything to say? And I said, yeah, do you have to keep calling that guy or what's it faggot? And this guy turned to me and says, what, is that, is that your boyfriend? What, do you up the bum, do you this? And I just got the tirade of stuff. And I just thought, oh my God, I, I wasn't expecting that. And went out for the second half, half my, my heart wasn't in it. And then at the end of the game, I didn't even have a shower. I just went to the manager of the team and just went, that was my last game. And I actually just walked, I just let, I just walked out. So that was one experience with a straight team. The other one was actually playing for Stonewall where we had this abuse of being gay on the pitch and the challenges and the physical stuff. And I sat in the dressing room at the end of the game and thought, is this what I want to get up for? Is this what I'm getting up on a Sunday morning for to get abused and kicked? And I didn't play for something like six weeks. I just thought, I don't want to do this. So I just dropped out for six weeks. But then I actually missed. There were, there were more good things happening than the bad things. I mean, getting that kind of abuse on that particular day didn't happen often with me. So I put it down to a one-off and actually went back and played. So what we would get after that would be very, very subtle things or the opposition not wanting to be in the showers when you're in the showers so they were sitting there dressing room while you go and have a shower and then you've left the building and that's when they will go and have a shower so that was Astley. what a great guy and what an amazing story stonewall fc is if you want to go and get involved or go and check out what they're doing you can find them on twitter at stonewall fc but at this point let's move the story on let's have a little bit more of a chat about Justin Fashioning, about who he was, about what type of footballer he was, and about how his career developed and progressed. And to do that, I'm going to introduce you to my next two guests. Yes, so my name's John Holmes. I'm senior editor at Sky Sports. I work on the digital side of the business. Uh, through that, I also help to coordinate our support for Stonewall's Rainbow Laces campaign which means that I write and contribute a lot of content towards LGBT inclusion in sports. And through that, I also founded and lead on a network advocacy and consultancy group called Sports Media LGBT+. My name's Alan Quick. Uh, I'm the editor of a newspaper in Mid-Devon. And also I DJ on the gay scene um, I do a lot of uh, LGBT uh, equality and diversity work and uh, keep really busy with those sort of things. So my first question for Alan was an obvious one. Who was Justin Fashionu? Alan had known him for a long time, up until his death in the late 90s. So I wanted to know, what type of person was he? What was his personality like? Was he popular? Was he funny? So that was where I started. Um, he was a really nice guy. Uh, I think everybody really got on with him. Um, fortunately, um, you know, he'd already come out by the time I met him. And running the gay night, it was back in those days, it was a little bit little bit more different from nowadays. Uh, we didn't publicise the night. It was sort of under the radar if you could call it that so it was it was it was a night 
for LGBT people and their friends. Um, and uh, he used to come along, enjoy a good night out. Uh, it was midweek, so uh, he wasn't playing football much in the mid mid of the week. And uh, so he, he was he was a great guy. Um, everybody got on well with him. He could uh, have a drink and a dance. And uh, um, and then after that, we'd also go out as well uh, socially on occasions, which was great fun. But just a pleasant man. Um, and still playing when I knew him. So, and how would you how would you kind of describe your your friendship with him? Yeah, we had a great great respect for each other. Um, he was very friendly. Um, we we you know we just got on very well, and he, he was honestly honestly uh, you know a genuine guy. Um, I think um, you know. Lately, he's been recognised as a pioneer um, and, you know, a significant figure in football um, and also in, in gay history and uh, as a, a spokesperson for black people. So my next question was for John. John had done a number of features on Justin Fashion for Sky Sports News, some of them featuring Alan. But I wanted to know what his fascination with Justin was, a footballer that... He never saw play in a time that he wasn't alive for. That was where I went next. He does have a, a significant legacy in the game and is a figure that's often referenced in relation to how football is coping now in terms of its fight against homophobia. Um, obviously, when he came out in the early 90s, Britain as a society, but also as the national game is very, very different. So he experienced you know, a great amount of discrimination, but took much of it in his stride, but I think um, you know some of the more subconscious elements of that obviously have a deep emotional impact on him. Uh, and I've really sort of approached it from that perspective. I was fortunate enough to be able to chat to Alan about his friendship with Justin for a piece that I wrote on Sky Sports and also um, other people that have been touched by Justin's story, such as uh, an artist friend of ours called Colin Yates, who's put together some really powerful pieces of artwork which have featured Justin as well. So I think there's there's lots of different parts to his character which makes his story very, very complex, and that's what makes him such a fascinating individual. Um, you know, as, as a player, uh, his career was blighted by injury. He had a very serious knee injury, which meant that he began, as you, as you referenced to Alan, to start to fall down the leagues and, and have a quite a nomadic journeyman type career where he, he played a, across the globe in, in, in lots of different places and never quite, never really had a settled period, perhaps at, at, at Torquay towards, uh, you know, the kind of latter days of his career was, was arguably his most kind of settled period in that whole time. Um, but also, you know, as a, as a person, there was, he was shaped by his environment and the homophobic attitudes of the time and the racist attitudes of the time as well. And, which is what led him um, to a great degree to, to kind of chase, you know, uh, uh, different scenarios that, that improved his situation in life. And a lot of that was, you know, his dealings with the tabloid press, which also came to characterise his life. So football in the 80s, yeah, I mean, it was a time where, you know, hooliganism was obviously much more rife than it is now. Uh, everything that we know about the game, the modern game, in terms of a more family-friendly feel, um, its place in terms of you know being courted by politicians, 
all those kind of different things that we've come to to expect from the modern day day game just weren't part of British cultural football life back in the 80s. It was a it was a place where men went to watch football and let out their emotions at, at, at the end of the week. Now you might you might argue it still is that to a great extent, but the game has become much more family friendly, um, and all, a lot of those elements have, have been lost. You know, which I think we would agree for for the better. Um, but racism and homophobia and, and sexism were absolutely inbred into the game. Uh, and and Justin being somebody who, you know, in, in the eyes of uh, anybody who was discriminatory in terms of uh, two of those different things, you know, was, was someone who was obviously victimised for who he was. As I mentioned earlier, Justin Fashionu moved from Norwich City to Nottingham Forest and became the first million pound black footballer. It came just two years after Trev Francis moved from Birmingham to Nottingham Forest, becoming the first million pound footballer in the UK. To give you a little bit of context around that, at the same sort of time, Brian Robson, Andy Gray, Steve Daly all made moves in and around the same transfer figure that Justin had made. It was an extremely significant moment in British football. And I wanted to ask Alan, from someone who was there at the time, did it feel that significant when he was around? I would say it certainly was. Um, you know, to be at the forefront uh, at that time, um, I, I know I had conversations with him. Um, at one game, he was getting a lot of racist abuse and uh, people were throwing bananas on the pitch at him. Um, and he picked up uh, the banana and ate it and threw it back at back at the crowd um which um might have taunted the crowd a little bit but it was it was what happened back then um and then later in his life like like you said like like we said that the homophobia um he endured um you know it wasn't very pleasant at all um and you know there are lots of recorded cases of that yeah uh, he did suffer um sadly it um it did affect his mental health um he turned he also um justin also um suffered somewhat um he he, he questioned his he, he it was his christian beliefs he was quite a deep-rooted christian and his um christian beliefs meant he was um never really comfortable with his sexual orientation so uh he was uh struggling a little bit at times with that um but but saying that you know he was a, a really good spokesman for for gay people in professional sports and in the black community um so yes you know he loved life and he lived it to the full um but as his um football career faltered um uh, you know, his he still got a, a craving for wealth and celebrity, and that distorted his priorities and values slightly. Um, you know, his knee injury didn't help, um, but you know, he found a lot of comradeship um, and respect among his colleagues. Uh, so yeah, and he was fondly he was fondly remembered by by supporters and liked by them. Justin's time at Nottingham Forest was a difficult one. Forest at this time were just a year on from their back-to-back -back European Cup triumphs in 79 and 80. And in 1981, Nottingham Forest under Brian Clough were one of the best sides in the country as well as one of the best sides in Europe. 
but Fashionu's relationship with Brian Clough deteriorated over his period at Forest. And Fashionu scored just three goals in 32 league games in the 1981-82 season. And after this, Justin's career never really recovered. He had a decent spell at Notts County and another decent spell at Torquay United later on in his career. But ultimately, he never replicated the form that he found at Norwich City. His relationship with Clough may have had a large impact on this. And Clough appeared to be disturbed when he found out that Fashionu was gay and that he would visit gay bars. In his autobiography, Clough accounts a dressing down he gave Fashionu after hearing rumours that he was going to gay bars. He said, Where do you go if you want a loaf of bread? A baker's, I suppose. Where do you go if you want a leg of lamb? A butcher's. So why do you keep going to that bloody puffs club? This clip of Brian Clough from 1995, just three years before Fashionu takes his own life, indicates just a little bit about their relationship. Having paid the first million pound transfer fee, does Brian Clough feel responsible for starting the excessive, excessive transfer market? I feel responsible for juicy fashion, you. <laughs> it took me about three months to twig him. You paid, had twigged him. You paid, you, you paid for the first million pound player, which was Trevor Francis. Yes, right? After his time in Nottingham Forest, as I mentioned, Justin's career never really lived up to the hype that came with his time at Norwich. He bounced around Notts County, Brighton Hove Albion, he went abroad to America, to Canada, and eventually coming back to England in the late 80s. And in the early 90s was when he came out to the press as gay and became the first top-level footballer to play in England as a gay man. And I wanted to know how this all came about, what this period was like, what the ramifications were for Justin and for his mental health. There must have been a lot of pressure, a lot of criticism, a lot of abuse. So we asked Alan and John what that time must have been like for Justin as a gay man coming out in the public eye. I think, I think you know, you put it in context of society and obviously this was around the time of Section 28, the, the kind of well-known law which forbid any references to homosexuality in schools or in local government institutions and you know this created this culture of fear and aligned with that was the AIDS crisis and all the suspicions that people had around um, you know the potential risks that they saw it um, which was enabled by the government to a large degree in terms of their messaging around the potential risk that gay men might cause other people in society and I think I think this obviously had an impact in football as well. I think there are stories about Justin that illustrate this. There was a quite quite a famous one of him, I think, when he was at West Ham, you know, going to, to take to take a bath in the communal baths of the time and, and the other players leaving the bath immediately or not yeah. wanting to shave in the same bath water as him. Um, which, you know, really kind of I think if you kind of look at an example like that, I think we'd be taken aback by that now. But for Justin, that would just be one of many microaggressions that would go on repeatedly in his life. And all these things would obviously have a huge impact on someone's mental health. Yeah, and, and, and I was going to say that, you know, the goals, um, the goals dried up as his confidence dried up um, and he sort of failed to fit in uh, with playing and lifestyle demands that Clough demanded really um so he you know he clough barred him from training um so 
it's just just an example of how difficult it was made for him. And I think you know you put that in context of any young gay person who's kind of struggling to come to terms with who they are. I think there's this period before Justin came out pub publicly on the front page of the newspaper, and the period after that. After that, I think the the initial period in particular, you know, he was obviously being influenced by lots of different people. I think that his Christianity, um, his that that really started from just going to i believe it was like kind of a garage in in nottingham to to sell a car and and the guy who owned the garage kind of convinced justin that the one thing that was missing from his life was faith which kind of set off this whole chain of events of him discovering god um so all these kind of characters kind of came in and out of justin's life and because you know as with any as i say with any young gay person struggling to accept who they are they're often looking for for somebody to form a relationship with it's quite a lonely existence um, so I think it's understandable that that you can see it through just in moving clubs and, and going abroad in, in lots of different examples as well and not staying in those places for very long. I think there was a feeling that he's, for somebody who was so charismatic and you could warm to his personality so easily, that there became a point where, where those relationships perhaps began to break down and, and as Alan's also alluded to, and as we know, money often became a factor as well. And, you know, borrowing money off, off other people for in order to kind of live the lifestyle that, that he was yeah. kind of either accustomed to or wanting to, to strive to achieve um, and would borrow money and then not pay it back. And, th and that obviously led to resentments and, and the, lo the, lo the loss of friendships. So it became a very um, topsy-turvy time for him, I think, throughout his whole life. Okay, so I think even when he was at Forest, the papers got, got wind of the fact that he might be gay and were wanting to run newspaper stories about it. And I believe... Uh, Alan might know more about this than me, but I, I think, I just, as I understand it, he was able to get that story, uh, stop that story from running in the, in the newspaper during the 80s. But that yeah. obviously led to him kind of having this Faustian pact with, with the, the tabloid press and, and maybe kind of feeding them stories over the years or, or different relationships with different editors and journalists, which, which led to the, the situation when he needed that, the money um, in in 1990, which led to that newspaper front page, you know, the son was willing to pay him a certain amount of money in order to get that story and put it on the front of the newspaper. Yeah, what what like when when I knew him uh, in the, in those in that period uh, while he was at Torquay um, was uh, the the occasion of uh, uh, Julie Goodyear when uh, he was um, he. Well, he was paid quite a considerable sum by a newspaper to say he was having a, a relationship with Julie Goodyear. And then the week after, uh, Julie Goodyear was paid a considerable sum to say she wasn't in a relationship with him. Uh, Alan, uh, Alan, I was just going to say for our younger listeners, we should perhaps say who Julie Goodyear is. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Uh, Coronation Street star <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. Famous. Bet Lynch, the landlady of the, of the Rovers' return. That's it. Yeah. So um, yeah. So you know, the press did did play a part um, by paying for stories. So some of it might not have been true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't remember 1990. I was too young, really. I, I think I was, but I, I kind of, I can sense the um, the reactions were ones of scandal, sensationalism, all those things that the tabloid yeah. press. You know that's it's 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 lived in trade. Um, these these are the ways they they are able to sell huge amounts of newspapers by sensationalizing stories. And, and and Justin's was without any doubt a sensational story. This um this you know black guy, the first ever player to come out 
publicly. It was, I think it was, wasn't actually attached to a club at the time he came out, but was obviously looking to get back into the game after a period away. Um, it's very interesting. So, what, I mean, one person I did speak to when I ran the story that I mentioned earlier, including Alan, was Frank Clark, who was, it was obviously former Forest uh, manager, uh, but also signed Justin for a time at Leighton Orient when he, after, after he came out. Um, and, you know, to, to hear Frank's recollections of, of Justin and the difficulties of the time, yes, there was, there was you know, some really negative reactions. And um, actually, sorry, I think Frank signed him briefly before he came out. I think it was earlier that year in 19, 19, 1990, but Justin was wrestling with the demons of, of wanting to come out publicly at the time. And it, and I remember Frank referring to the physio at Orient. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, he was a real confidant for, for Justin and, and you know, was able to help him through a lot of the, the psychological sort of difficulties that, that he was having. In the end, he, Justin didn't stay at Orient for a very long, long time. And, and as we know, he drifted further and, and eventually did come out on that newspaper front page before ending up at, at Torquay. But I, th I think, you know, judging from what Alan remembers of, of Justin during his days in Devon, I, th I think the public probably reacted to it very quickly. I mean, you know, I, I, the times were beginning to change and we'd have kind of, you know, gay relationships on TV and EastEnders and Stonewall as a, as a, as a pressure group were, were beginning to become more widely known in, in society. So as you got deeper into the 90s, you know, yeah. I'm sure that the, the public mood began to shift considerably and, and and Justin as I understand it was was very much welcomed and and embraced by fans that certainly in Scotland where he played at Airdrie um and and in other and at other clubs like Hearts I think where we have a spell too so um I, it was again there was you know racism and homophobia of course in the mid-90s as well but I think you know people once they met Justin and got to knew him warmed to him hugely yeah, he was great, greatly liked, uh, and like you say, um, you know, it, uh, it 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 was changing times. Um, the more as time went on, um, it became more acceptable, and uh, he was much more liked. And you know, he he went on to he he gained a television program from it. Uh, did lots of interviews. Um, Made, wrote a song which sold well, uh, did some publications and fitness books and things like that. So, so yes, he did reap some rewards from coming out and and things like that. But um, but still, you know, he still had the occasional racism and homophobia on the way. If you remember from the start of this episode, I spoke to Ashley Pitter from Stonewall FC. And during our conversation, I asked Astley what were his memories of Justin Fashionu, the footballer and the person. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to watch match of the day, and um, I remember his wonder goal. Um, uh, best way to shut the crowd out because for some reason they, he was getting the boos and the monkey chants. And for a footballer, the best way to shut that up is by scoring, and he would do that, and. For me, he he was a representative of the black community. I mean, I remember watching um, Brendan Batts and Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis, and they changed things for lots of black kids who, who wanted to play football. And Justin Fashionu was another one in that long line of people that changed things. 
Um, the, the change with maybe Justin is a lot slower because they're still having to deal with the fact that he was, you know, gay and uh, it's, it's still not prompted uh, another Premiership footballer to come in. Just a couple of years. He's not. There's not much difference between the, the age between me and him. But it, it, it was it was great watching him play, and it was great watching his brother play as well. And for me, any black player that played, it was like absolutely brilliant. But then the the Justin Fashion News story had a had a sad ending to it, and that was that was that really hurt. That was probably the most painful thing in football to watch. How this you know this great footballer never got the support, and um, you know ultimately hung himself. It was, yeah, it was, it was quite sad, distressing as well. I, I mean, I just if if it was me, what if I'd made it as a professional footballer? That that could have been me. <laughs> that could be me. That the, the torture that you can't be yourself. And you know, they keep saying how oh, the world wasn't ready for him. Yeah, the world wasn't ready. But when is it ever going to be ready? The world's never ready. You just have to, you know, grab a ball by horns and go for it. And he couldn't. He couldn't do that. Not even, not even family backed him. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a you know real sad story. I, I look at things and you know, the potential for greatness, but then he had this thing where he needed support and never got it. Justin's life at this time was incredibly difficult. He was under a lot of pressure from the media. He was under the spotlights, and you'd hope at this time that he'd be able to lean on his family for support. We obviously heard that his parents split up at a young age and they grew up in foster care and perhaps he'd be able to lean on the relationship he had with his brother, John, who was also a professional footballer. But this is another tragic and and sad element of the story. John didn't particularly support Justin, both in private and in public. And this is where we pick up the story next. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. I think you know there was this intense rivalry between the two brothers, even from an early age. Um, Justin was the one who kind of really burst onto the scene at Norwich, um, and being the older brother, kind of left left John somewhat in in his shadow. And and John was always kind of chasing, wanting to to be better than Justin and to, and to and to earn a reputation in his own right. Justin not only was a first million pound black player, but had also been capped by England at under twenty one level. Um, and there, there was this kind of competitiveness between the, the, between the two of them. And, and as John's career began to accelerate and Justin's began to decline, then, you know, that relationship, that rivalry was kind of flipped on its head as John became more of a kind of recognisable figure, but also would be confused sometimes with, because of the, the, the society of the time and, and the racism, perhaps. You know, the two brothers would often be confused for, for, for one another. Um, and I think, you know, John would sometimes be you know homophobic abuse could be chanted at john uh, with people thinking perhaps they were chanting it at his brother and and that would obviously rankle with him uh, to a huge amount um and you know john was the one that was capped by england um and had a successful kind of top flight career with wimbledon uh, winning the fa cup of course uh, against liverpool in 1988 and so all of the, all of these things kind of combined again you know to to create this fractious relationship between the two of them to the extent that John realized the impact that it would have on the family for Justin to, to come out publicly through the Sun newspaper and, and actively try to try to discourage him, even giving him money uh, to try to prevent that from happening. But Justin went ahead and did it anyway. And that, of course, was, was pretty much the death knell for, for their relationship. Yeah. 
what was we now come to the final act of our story and this is a tragic and and really sad end to the tale to the life of justin fashion in 1998 justin died he took his own life at the age of 37 now, i'm going to pass you over now to john and alan to talk you through those events yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's a very, again, a very complex story and there's differing accounts of what happened, but he had been uh, over in, in America. I think um, he was in one of the southern states um, and had had to leave under a cloud. There was the suggestion and, and allegations that he'd behaved uh, improperly towards a, a, a young guy um, and had, you know, perhaps had, had, you know, the allegations were of assault and, and that was why Justin had to leave the U.S., very swiftly, um, the 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 story was beginning to to gain traction, and there was, you know, I think there was a a, a warrant had been issued in order for Justin to return to the U.S. to face, you know, the accusations that that were being leveled against him, and without, you know, with seemingly without anywhere else to turn, and and as he wrote in in his suicide note, not yeah. wanting to to bring any what he saw as potentially any further shame upon the family. Uh, sadly, he took his own life in a in a disused garage in in Shoreditch in East London on a May uh, on a May May day, I believe. I think it was uh, May 1998. Yeah, on May the third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was terribly sad. Um, like you say, you know, there were these allegations against him, made against him, but um, within uh, possibly even before he'd taken his life. Uh, those allegations had been dropped. Um, so he was unaware of that, sadly. Um, and I think he, in his in his um, suicide note, he wrote, uh, I realised that I had already been presumed guilty. I did not want to give any more embarrassment to my friends and family. Um, so it was a terribly sad occasion. Um, but just so sad that the allegations had been dropped. Um, there were allegations that the the young guy's family was was uh, seeking financial gain, um, but nothing was ever proved or 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 decided. I presume you. What was your sort of personal reaction to it at the time? Then, Alan, I'd obviously, given you had a, a friendship. But, yeah. I was so totally shocked, mortified, um, really horrendous. Um, but uh, um, it inspired me later in life to um, to carry on with equality and diversity work. But um, for a few years, I was just pretty upset. Um, and to be honest, I know uh, John just mentioned that you know. A lot of people were shocked by it, but there was still, still um, the chanting, the chanting that really shocked me. The chanting at, at football matches, um, "Fashion News dead, he's hanging in the shed," was the worst one that really got to me. Um, "Fashion News dead, he's hanging in the shed." I just couldn't believe that people would do that. Uh, but it was different times back then. I know it doesn't seem like that many years ago, but but times have changed. So, but there we are. You know, those were the days that the, the Premier League was really beginning to kind of generate serious wealth. Um, but kind of the homophobia was perhaps not quite as as commonly overt 
in the game as, as it had been when Justin was playing. But as Alan alludes, those kind of chants were still heard. And I think an interesting kind of comparison is within a you know only a year or two that the quite famous incident between Robbie Fowler and Graham Lasseau in a Liverpool Chelsea match where Fowler homophobically taunted Lasseau during a match and the whole crowd you know cheered you know for Robbie Fowler um, you know and and that whole incident I think just just kind of coloured um, a lot of you know how how people thought this was like a fairly still a fairly victimless thing to do to be able to homophobically abuse someone and uh, and, and Graham Lasseau you know spoken really well about the kind of abuse that he kind of endured in his playing career um, you know including newspaper front pages I think there was even one that kind of um, almost kind of announced that Graham Lasseau had come out as straight <laughs> which was just kind of you know absolutely ludicrous when, when, you, when you think about it but um, you know he, he, he was someone who kind of was living in that in that Playing in that period after after Justin sadly took his own life and, and had to put up with with a lot of abuse as well. So mm. yeah, I mean the game was beginning to change, and but even in those early days of the of the two thousands, I mean there was no kind of LGBT visibility uh, at any level. There was, it was years before even the Rainbow Laces campaign or football yeah. v homophobia began. None of the LGBT fan groups that we that we have now and 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 gay people just were seen as just not even being a, a, you know possibly imagined. Uh, in, in football, and to, to actually be gay was was as, as those of us who probably you know went to school around that time and, and just before Section Twenty Eight sort of came to an end, um, you know to be to be labelled gay was about the biggest insult you could get at school, or, or to be a, as, a, as a young person. Um, so I think all of all of these things were were kind of coming to, to the, that kind of intense homophobia was coming to an end, but but now we're dealing with a legacy of that, the kind of the lingering shadows of homophobia, which is, which is still present in the game. To finish today's episode, I wanted to look back at Justin's life and the things that he went through. And I wanted to see if we could learn anything, both for the current generation of football fans and future generation of football fans. So I spoke to Ashley, John, and Alan about the current modern day attitude towards LGBTQ plus within football and also about whether they thought we would have an out gay footballer at the top level in this country anytime soon. You may well have recently seen the video of Arsenal fans singing about Ashley Cole and I'm going to play a clip from it here if you haven't but I think this just goes to demonstrate that the issues that Justin suffered 20, 30, 40 years ago are still alive and well within the game. And that's why this conversation is so important. Yeah, I think I think it is um it's such a, a daunting prospect for somebody who's you know maybe they're a young person kind of struggling to accept themselves i mean no one's no one's ever going to come out publicly as gay until they've fully accepted themselves and they know they've got the support of all the people around them um which is why you know we talk so much about the importance of kind of visible messages of, of support whether that's through campaigns or or having you know supportive teammates i think we've seen even just in the last week or so a couple of players at everton in richarlison and lucas dean talking really positively about the support that they would give to a teammate if they if they were ever struggling and, and and was thinking about coming out, which is really encouraging to see, and that's that's still something that's really relatively new to for for players who aren't LGBT or 
you know, to even talk in, in those terms in a, in a public way, which is really encouraging. But yeah, I, I think I think these is there are lots of different reasons why you know a player potentially hasn't come out yet um, it, whilst they're still playing. I think the media is a big one, as as we've talked about. There's a huge public interest in this topic because it's a barrier that hasn't yet been, been broken in the Premier League era and not since Justin's time. Um, so that has created this huge void that people are constantly looking for somebody to fill and fill. I was just going to say that, you know, um, John Fashnu uh, later regretted some of the comments he made about his brother um, when, he, when, he, when he first came out. Um, but then in an interview in uh, 2012, uh, John said that his brother wasn't gay and was merely attention-seeking or something, something along those words, which it's just, uh, it just goes on. It, um, it, it just seems to go on. But um, I know um, some years after, after Justin's death, um, uh, you know, we must pay credit to uh, Darren and Jason and Paul and others that established the, the Justin campaign, which later became Football v Homophobia, uh, because they were they were pioneers uh, from Brighton that recognised that Justin's name needed to be kept alive as um, the first LGBT player and uh, also just to, to to make it a little easier if possible for lgbt football players to come out and also i think when you when you look at the the situation now because of the rise of the women's game in which there is such visible lgbt representation yes. uh, at, at such a high level when when that is contrasted with the men's game it's become even more pronounced and that has kind of ha had this renewed focus on why is the men's game still struggling so much with this issue? I think that's that's been a that's been a key key factor as well. I mean, it's such a personal decision. So I mean, all of these kind of forecasts of will will this happen in the next five years? Will this happen in the next ten years? I mean, it's it's just kind of it is pure speculation, and and ultimately, any any eventuality lies within the mind of one person. Um, Again, there's there's lots of talk of different scenarios of why can't players, you know, who are gay or bi in the game, why can't they come together as a group and, and then there wouldn't be so much pressure on one individual. That's something that you often hear referenced. But again, it's such a again, it's such a personal decision and, and it's unlikely that that kind of scenario would ever be able to be facilitated yet even, uh, you know, let alone actually come into being because that's just not how gay people and bisexual people come to that point within their own lives when they're ready to be more public about who about who they are. So I, I think I, I think it is a very it's a very complex scenario. It's often the complexities and the nuances are often skipped over, certainly in the media, because of that drive to have a, a big sensational headline that's going to sell lots of copies of newspapers, which yeah. is why you know we, we, we've seen that again in, in recent weeks. Mm. Um, for, for the, but there is you know a significant amount of people such, such as Alan. Uh, and hopefully, you know, my own group, Sports Media LGBT, and some of the work that we do at Sky Sports, who are working really hard to create those cultures and environments in which people, you know, might feel that they do have that support network in place within their teammates, within their clubs, from fan groups, uh, et cetera, and can help them build their confidence to the point where if it's the right thing for them to do and, and they feel and they feel comfortable within that, that sense of visibility, that they could be the ones who could potentially share their truth and inspire the, the next generation.
I think this will always be a story. Um, you know, people coming out publicly as lesbian, gay, bi or trans, that will always be a story. There will always be a significant interest in that because it's such a personal journey. Um, and, you know, uh, visibility in, in various walks of life, particularly in sport, um, is so minimal that, 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 you know, that's always going to be, there's always going to be a, a public interest. Even within the LGBT community, there's always a huge interest in, in people coming out and sharing their stories. And that's good, that's not a bad thing. You know, these stories have huge impact and power and can and can really influence young people in particular when they see, you know, a, a, uh, somebody that they see themselves reflected in somebody at a high level um, who's able to kind of talk confidently about who they are. That's that's massively important. And the media has a has a big role in, in terms of getting those stories out there and, and sharing them in a positive way. So that's good. Um, in terms of the mental health, I think, you know, there's been lots of players who have kind of come out in recent years, such as Robbie Rogers, former, uh, you know, US international who, who played here at Leeds and then went back to the US and played at LA Galaxy. And Robbie's spoken brilliantly in his own book and also in interviews about the loneliness that he felt. Um, and this has also been echoed by another player who came out recently called Thomas Beatty, who I spoke to uh, at the end of Pride Month in June. Um, both of these players, you know, distracted themselves so much from their own journeys uh, in terms of using sport as a cover. So, you know, they were embedded in, in a men's, in a male team sport, they used that as a cover so they wouldn't have to deal with this internal dialogue and internal battle with, with themselves. Um, it, was only, it was only when that pressure became too much that they were able either to break out of the game, to, to, to step away from it. And Thomas' injury kind of enabled that with, with Robbie. He literally took himself away from the game so that he could come out. Um, but once they found out that there was uh, Robbie in particular, you know, once he, he found out that there was acceptance and, and he was able to go back to Los Angeles and find a community which would embrace him, he flourished and, you know, won the MLS Cup and had a great end to his career. But I think it's really interesting when they've both spoken about the loneliness that, that they felt, even in the highest points of their playing career before they came out, you know, they weren't able to celebrate those moments fully. Um, mm. You know, they would find themselves, you know, feeling alone in a crowded room, that sense of, of kind of being cut off from the enjoyment and not being able to fully immerse themselves in it because there was always this thought at the back of their heart at the back of their minds that they weren't being totally honest with the, either with their teammates or with themselves and, and I think you know your listeners would only have to envisage that kind of end of season celebration that clubs in this country and all around the world will always have of players with their families walking around the pitch and and you know waving to the fans on the last day of the season for a player who was closeted and and struggling with that part of themselves that would leave them feeling so hollow and empty to not be able to kind of have that same family and 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 love that that their teammates might be able to enjoy and exhibit publicly but having to hide that to themselves and never feeling in the moment and i think that's something that i i really hope the game can talk about more when it talks about mental health and you know we've seen some really encouraging signs this season with the heads up campaign um you know and and lots of other initiatives of, of, of talking about um you know the mental health struggles that people go through you know and being being in the closet is a huge mental health burden and can lead to so many other different um you know setbacks in terms of depression and, and addictions um this is this is an area that football's not quite ready to talk about yet even though it's embraced other aspects of mental health discussion men struggle to talk about their emotions and you know suicide is uh, the biggest killer of young men in this country and uh, you know i think the, the heads up campaign that's really going to help prince uh, william was doing things recently and had a television program 
um, just to get that debate going is a real boost. It makes people aware. It helps young people to understand that they should talk about these things. And, and that's the way forward. So clubs are, uh, are actively getting involved. It's really starting to help that people are starting to talk about these things. And, and what's really refreshing is that now we've got out people working in the game at different levels. So Ryan Atkin, yeah. the, the football referee, who's, who's yeah. spoken really brilliantly about how his mental health has improved immensely since he came out. Um, and is able and is able to kind of he's he's risen up through the ranks and is now refereeing at national league level you know assistant ref, fourth official at efl hoping to get into the efl as a referee in the next year or two which is great you know there's people like hugo Schechter, who's the player care official at west ham uh, head of, head of player care who kind of shared his story uh, non-league managers such as luke tufts and matt morton and, you know different levels of non-league football there's loads of encouraging stories there about people who are out in the men's game and thriving and 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 these are the people that you know i'd really love the heads up campaign and other initiatives to focus on so that they can bring their stories to wider attention too i'm also quite impressed by all the uh lgbt uh supporters groups and the work that they're doing because so many clubs have them nowadays and they are making real inroads into into the clubs and it's such a benefit yeah, and, and the campaigns we've mentioned, Rainbow Laces Football v Homophobia, Amal Fashionu, uh, Justin's yep. niece has started up the Justin Fashionu Foundation, you know, yep. following his uh, initiation into the Hall of Fame, which is, which is absolutely fantastic. They're really looking to focus on mental health. So, you know, absolutely wish them good good luck in their endeavours. And working with, with the, the PFA, the FA, all these organisations have important roles to play and, yep. and mental health needs to become an important part of their conversations too. Well, we, we all know... The top level of football is about money. And uh, a professional footballer's career is a very short one. It could be even short, even shorter if you get a really bad injury. So it's about making, accumulate as much money as you can in the short space of time. So if, uh, you know, you want a sponsorship, for, for example, um, that would be, you know, the sponsor thinking, can we actually make some money out of this guy? You know, is he gonna is he gonna make money for us? Will people buy products if we put his name or picture on it? The other thing is you need to play. And if your manager is homophobic and doesn't want you in the team, they can make all sorts of excuses why this guy can't be in the team and you can't really prove you can't prove any of this. You can't prove oh you know what he's not up to it or he's not this, he's not that. You can't prove it. So um, a, a, a footballer, especially a young footballer coming up who might be gay, is thinking, you know, I've got so many people I've got to rely on and so many people I'm depending on who might not be supporting me because of my sexuality. And the easiest way is I'll keep my mouth shut, make as much money as I can, and then tell them at the end of my career that I'm gay. So I think it's purely opportunities to play and money. I think that'll be it. That, that'll be in, uh, you're jeopardizing that if coming out at the very beginning. I would think if anybody would do it at the, at the beginning of their career, it would be a young player at the academy now. It would be a player who's at the academy who's gay and everybody knows who's gay. And that's the only way I would actually see a professional player being openly gay at the top level of football. I think it has to be from the academy. Yeah, um, almost yeah. as if people have yeah. to kind of grow up with it, like get used to it over the Yeah, period. yeah. You know, from... 14, 15, and you happen to be gay, but you're still in your team. Your teammates don't care. I mean, 
we're, we're getting less people joining Stonewall FC because um, the guys who would leave their pub team or their local club, they're, they're out with their friends and their friends don't care. So why would they, they now leave their club where they're comfortable to join us? Unless it's maybe they're looking for a higher standard of football. But they won't be leaving it because, oh, I can't tell my friends I'm gay. It won't be for that reason. Because I think when you going back to what you said earlier, things change. I think, yeah, things have changed when it comes to the amateur game and gay people being more accepting. Um, but for a open gay professional football at the highest level, the work has to be done right at the very beginning at the academies. Well, I'm finding that um, it, my experience that people don't want to ask questions. And I think, I don't know, there's several reasons why they don't. They just feel, oh, I'm being nosy. Um, especially during this, I mean, brought down to the Black Lives Matter things going on. Every Sunday morning or Saturday morning, we have a coffee morning, socially distanced in my street. And I'm the only black person that lives in my street. So I go out there with my, my husband, who's white, and... I, I post on Facebook and like a lot of it, my neighbors see it and I say, look, if you've got any questions about anything, you must ask. Don't be afraid to ask me. Don't just assume that I'm going to be offended because I won't be. If you ask me a genuine question, I will do my best to answer it. And that's the way you learn. And it did have, it did have an effect because people did ask me questions, not all at once, but they, they picked their moments and they did ask certain things and I did answer them. So, um, yeah, we have, we have a problem, I think, in this country about actually asking the question. Like, you asked me, how do you pronounce your name? A lot of people don't ask. They just assume that's how it's spelled. And if they've got it wrong, they're not going to ask me because they think I'm going to be offended. And I, I don't take offense easy. I mean, it's like, if you want to ask me a question, it's because you want to know something. Mm. As long as you're not asking me something really personal like um you know you know what i mean really really bad. <laughs> as long as but it's not yeah but if you want to ask me something what do you think about these statues coming down and i can say well no i disagree with it or some of them need to come down or what you know at least you get a, an honest answer but never never ever be afraid to ask the question well you know you know you're you're, you're part of the solution you're, you're part of the solution, you're doing the podcast and you're asking questions and it's going to go out so people can actually hear this. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're a massive part of the, the solution. So, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I don't think I've ever been called the solution before, Ashley. I think that's, that's <laughs> No, it. well, yeah, you are. I mean, people who uh, ask questions in interviews and things like that, and they, they, you know, they are part of the solution. You're, you're asking the questions. And if you don't, like I said, if you don't ask the questions, you don't learn anything. Yeah. If you don't learn anything, you can't pass on what you've learned. Yeah. Yeah. I'd just say to all your listeners, you know, um, either if, if presumably the, the majority of them won't be LGBT themselves, but if they're involved in the game at, at any level, you know, just, just to be a good teammate and just to be a good ally is being able to speak confidently about this topic and why it's important. Um, and I really hope that they're encouraged by, as I say, the Heads Up campaign and a lot of the work that's been done there. And be like, you know, these Everton players that I mentioned earlier and at Liverpool uh, too, I think in, in recent weeks and months, they've been really, really good about talking about their support for, for their LGBT fan group. And if there was somebody in the game who 
who, who was struggling with their sexual orientation or their gender identity you know we, we need to be make sure that we're looking after our trans and non-binary friends as well um, you know these are really important conversations to have and just by listening and empathizing you can make a massive difference to somebody's life I'd like to thank you for joining me today I'd also like to thank John Ashley and Alan for their time and their insights and their amazing stories this has been Man Marking. You can find the rest of our shows on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever else you get your podcast from. If you want to interact with us or find out more about the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And our next episode is out on Monday as we speak to TalkSport, BT, BBC commentator Nigel Adderley. Thanks for listening, and remember, keep asking, where's the talking, lads? <laughs>